Well, today is April's, April 1st. It's commonly referred to as April Fool's Day. And by popular custom, this is a day of practical jokes and trying to dupe the gullible. So don't be surprised if somebody tries to pull a practical joke on you. I'm not sure I actually want to go home this afternoon for fear of what Jimmy will have done. <clears throat> he is um, very good at these things. And when he and uh, Reuben, when Reuben was still living here, it was dangerous. You, it, it, you had no idea what would work and what wouldn't work. Well, most of that's done in good humor, and I, I hope you will be able to laugh if you do fall for one of these things. But I will warn those that do like to carry out such pranks. Okay, you've got to put the cursor on the middle and then click it once. There we go. Okay, be careful. If you like pulling pranks, make sure you're not going to cause physical harm to somebody and don't irritate them. The, the idea is to bring some levity to life, uh, not to force your humor, which they may not share. Okay? I think you get the point. Um, well, how did this practice of April Fool come about anyway? The origin's a little bit obscure. Some have thought maybe it's a spring equinox when nature fools mankind with a sudden change in the weather. Okay. There's others who've tried to trace this historically back to the Roman festival of Hilaria. That sounds like a fun festival. Or the Indian Holt Festival. Now, both of those actually have elements in them that are very similar to what we do on April Fool's. But it would appear that our modern custom here in the United States probably has its origin in the 18th century, for it was in the 1700s that Charles IX of France switched from the Julian to the Gregorian calendar. That had an effect on England, and then it was brought over here by the British. Now, the difference between these two calendars uh, is actually somewhat significant. They're similar in many ways, but they calculate the number of days in a year differently, and they also calculate the timing of the resurrection differently too. In practical terms, the Julian calendar is slightly shy of enough time. And as the centuries were rolling by, the seasons were no longer matching the calendar and something had to be done. Because if nothing was done, we'd be, um, well, we'd be shoveling snow in May and August would be the beginning of spring and we couldn't wait for February to come and see the fall colors. It, just, it was shifting. So the Gregorian calendar was brought in, and it made those corrections so that uh, every year the calendar and the actual season stay with each other. Now, what does all that have to do with April Fool's Day? Well, the kings of different countries would set when the new year began. And in France, when Charles IX changed this in 1564. He also changed New Year's Day from April 1st to January 1st. And those that did not like that and continued to want to celebrate it on April 1st uh, were victimized by pranksters. And it became known as, sorry, I'm not a French speaker, uh, Poisson d'Avril, which means April fish. Now, I don't know why... They want to call it that, but it's April Fish, and that's the origin of April Fool's Day. There, now you have something you can share with people that they could care less about, okay? <laughs> now, the scripture does not speak about April Fool's Day, but as we've been seeing in Proverbs, it does speak a lot about other kinds of fools. 
In our study of Proverbs, we've come across several types of fools. There's the naive. They are the ones who tend to be uh, simple, ignorant, um, gullible. They tend to believe what people tell them. Because of that, they tend to be oblivious to the dangers that are actually facing them. And those who are evil can easily lead them astray. Now, a step down from the naive are those who are foolish. These are people who are, the actual word here means thick. They, uh, they do things that lack sense. And there's also an element, there's a moral deficiency for those who are foolish. Now, everybody can be, even if we are normally wise, there are things we may be naive about. We just don't understand, we're ignorant of. There's also times when any of us can do something that's foolish. As you increase in wisdom, how naive you are should diminish as well as doing foolish things. So we always want to increase in our wisdom. Now, those who are characterized by foolishness would become the common fool. The Hebrew word here refers to those who are dull, they're obstinate. They have a very strong tendency to make wrong choices because they don't really want to know about things that are contrary to what they want to do. They like knowledge if it matches what they want. If it's contrary to that, they don't want to know anything about it. So they shun off that knowledge. Well, that sets you up to make wrong choices. If, um, if the obstinacy in this continues to increase, they eventually become scoffers. And they are marked by insolent pride. We've all met these folks. They are the ones who claim to know a whole lot more about whatever than they actually do know. And they are not shy of telling you that. So we've run into those folks. Um, they're a source of lots of contention, according to Proverbs 22.10. Now, the scoffer descends into even greater foolishness. They eventually will reach what I will call a confirmed fool. In Hebrew, this is Nabal. This is someone who has become closed-minded. They have shut themselves off and become insensible to God and to morality, often exhibiting that in disgraceful and noble ways and... Um, though we, we have to admit that there's a lot of these kinds of fools are very sophisticated too. This kind of fool will call what is evil good. They will call what is good evil. And our society has produced a bumper crop of these. We meet them all over the place. Some reside in homeless shelters, alleys, and jails. Others reside in the halls of academia and government. You will find them all over the place. The difference between fools and those who are wise is not a matter of intelligence. It's a matter of moral character. Now this morning I want to talk about some other categories of fools and a response to them. The ignorant fool, the educated fool, the apathetic fool, and then the wise fool. Three of these are deadly in a very real sense, and the last is what we should strive to be. Now, Proverbs, again, has given us a lot of these definitions, but Psalm 14.1 gives a very pointed definition of a fool. It says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So really, when it comes down to, to being a fool, it's, it's related to their denial to the active presence of God. They are pushing that away. Now, obviously, the uh, one who is a proud atheist and proclaiming he doesn't believe in God is very obvious, right? But there are also practical atheists, and there's different degrees of that. 
These are folks that might even say they believe in a God, but the actions of their life are as if he didn't exist. They don't really take him to account in what they're going to do. It's not part of their decisions or their actions. They're just going on doing whatever they want to go do. We also find there are those who believe in a God, but it's not the God of the Bible. They follow a false religious system, following a false God, which fools them into what we would call an ignorant fool. They don't know. Now, many, if not most, of the people in the world actually fall into this category of they're ignorant fools. They've never heard the truth of the Scriptures. They've never been told about God has done for them in Jesus Christ. And because of that, you might find they do things that we consider very absurd. They may behave in ways that seem really silly. They follow a manner of life that seems utterly ridiculous. But the reason is they simply don't know any better. They don't know the truth. Or they may have gotten bits and pieces of it, but they never may able to put it together because it's never been clear to them. Think about the masses who are caught up in the various false religions. They are in this category. It's what they've been taught. It's all they know. They are ignorant of the truth. And that shows up in all sorts of ways. There are those who worship nature. And there's an increasing number of them in our own nation. They give honor and veneration to trees and rocks and animals, things that are part of creation. We recognize that's foolish. It's absurd. Bow down to a rock. But then there's idolatry, and that takes in a lot of different forms. That's as equally ridiculous. In fact, Isaiah 44, 9 through 20, points this out. We're going to take a look at this passage. Isaiah 44, starting in verse 9, Isaiah begins with a very general statement about foolishness. He says this, Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. It's futility. He then goes on in verses 12 to 14 and describes them making an idol out of metal or taking a, a piece of a tree, uh, some wood, and then fashioning it. And he mocks them for the utter irony of what's going on. In verse 16, he continues on. He says, half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats over this half that he's burning, he eats meat as he roasts his roast. He is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Aha! I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it, he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and he worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for thou art my god. Ridiculous. In verses 18 through 20, he points out, they do not know, they do not understand, for their deceived hearts have blinded them to the truth. It's not any better with any false religion. If you step back, it's ridiculous. But they're actually worshiping these things, thinking that these things somehow are going to deliver them. They can hear and answer. How should we respond to ignorant fools? Well, actually the same way that Paul did in Acts 17. Remember there he goes up on Mars Hill while he's waiting in Athens. In fact, verse 16 says this, His spirit was being provoked within him while he was uh, beholding the city full of idols. He's waiting for Timothy to come down. And everywhere he goes, it's, it's full of these idols, each one representing some god that they worship. In verse 17, Paul begins to teach in their synagogues. And in the marketplace, that gets the attention of the philosophers. Then, verses 18 through 21, he's invited by the philosophers 
come up to the Erigopis, Mars Hill, and we want to hear this thing you're talking about. So here's what he does. Look at verse 22 if you're there in Acts 17. He says, And Paul stood in the midst of the Erigopis, and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examined the objects of your worship, I also found an altar and with this inscription, To an unknown God. What you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So Paul then goes on, he tells them about the one true God and of Jesus Christ. So our response to those who are ignorant fools is compassion, and we seek to educate them and tell them of the love of Jesus Christ. We give them the gospel. They don't know. They need to hear it. Now, the number of ignorant fools in our own land has continued to increase. The rise of secularism certainly is not helping with that, but there's also an increase in all the false religions. And when I was in high school, it was very unusual to hear of anybody that had not at least heard some aspect of the gospel, something about it, to know something about who Jesus Christ is. In our own time, it's quite common to find someone who has never heard anything. And for them, the word Jesus, it's an expletive. It's a cuss word to say when you're angry or upset. You run into those folks. Don't assume that when someone takes the Lord's name in vain, they actually know anything about the Lord. Have a little compassion on them and tell them the truth. So next time you hear someone say Jesus or God as an expletive or a cuss word, simply ask them, do you know this person you're talking about? Or if you have a little humor and can push a little bit and say, oh, wow, a prayer meeting. They won't probably get that one either. Use the opportunity and think they may not have a clue about what they're really doing. It may give you the opportunity to present the gospel, or at least it may give you the opportunity to give them a uh, mild rebuke for their ignorant but crude, rude, and blasphemous behavior. But it's common out there now, isn't it? And that includes these people who say, OMG, we know what they're talking about. That's taking the name of the Lord in vain. The ignorant fool doesn't know, so a response is compassion. Proclaim the gospel. Like wisdom in the book of Proverbs, which we talked about a few weeks ago. We shout to them, we call to them, we invite them. You're naive, come and learn. The next category, the educated fool, generates a little different response. Now, the major difference between the educated fool and the ignorant fool is this claim to knowledge. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So he's dealing with the way it would be manifested normally in, in his time. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Educated fools profess this. We're wise. And if you speak with them, they usually claim, I know a whole lot more about this than you do, so you should listen to me. Well, the sad truth is their claim to be wise makes them even more the bigger fool. There are many individuals who will fit this type of fool, but there are certain groups that tend to uh, have a lot of them. They tend to congregate certain directions. The first group that I think of with this are uh, philosophers. 
Now, I have met some really good philosophers, Christian philosophers, who've really thought through uh, deep, hard questions, and they're very helpful. However, most philosophers have imbibed at the various philosophies of the world. Often they've studied some liberal theology, and they become blind to the truth. They don't see it anymore. They've been feeding at the wrong trough. And many of them are on this quest to enlighten others about the myth of Christianity. That's like taking a blanket, throw it over the only light available, then say, oh, now I can see better. Now you're in darkness. But that's what they're offering. I didn't take the required freshman philosophy class at the state university I attended until my last year. And since I took the long program of five years full-time, I was uh, already quite a bit older than the 17, 18-year-olds coming in. And I had been able to really work through my own beliefs. Why did I believe what I did? What is it I believed? And I had dealt with the questions that come up in freshman philosophy. And so it was easy for me to recognize the falsehoods being espoused and the weakness of the arguments being made. But there were quite a few young Christians in there that were shaken to the core of their faith. They had never thought deeply before. They never thought about basic questions like, how do you know anything? And even though the philosophical assertions being made were inane, they were overwhelmed because the professor was intelligent, but he was also an educated fool. Another group that I think of that has an overabundance of educated fools are the scientists who are committed to evolution. And by the way, evolution is not science, it is a philosophy. It does not follow the scientific method, it's not observable, it's not testable, it's not repeatable. It is a philosophy. And it distorts whatever the evidence is out in the real world and smashes at it till it fits their worldview or they'll just ignore it. That creates problems. Dr. Benur, he was a director of research many years ago at the National Center for Scientific Research in France, said this, Evolutionism is a fairy tale for grown-ups. This theory has helped nothing in the progress of science. It is useless. That's pretty strong. Religious evolutionists, and they are out there, they're not all atheistic, they have a very small God. They don't have the creator God of the Bible. They're educated fools. The Apostle Paul exposed educated fools in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. We read part of that in our reading this morning. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased with the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. How do you respond to an educated fool? Well, it depends. If the person has never heard a clear presentation of the gospel, then treat them as an ignorant fool, because that's really what they are. They may be highly educated, and they may be arrogant in their ignorance, which is very irritating, but have compassion on them anyways. They are still someone who, in reality, 
is simply caught up in their own sin, blinded, and they don't know any better. So we need to be compassionate. Give them the gospel. However, if these are those who have heard the gospel and they've rejected it, we need to be much more careful and treat them in a different manner. In Matthew 7, 6, Jesus gave us a warning. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you. These people are dogs and they're swine. Now that sounds real harsh, but it's the reality. If they had previously professed faith in Christ, and you will run into them as well, the proper term for them is an apostate. That's what they are. And you have to be very strong in dealing with some people, and that includes these kinds of educated fools. Don't roll over and play dead when one of them comes to your door, or you run into the one at work or at school, And they may be some kind of intellectual giant. They can do mental gymnastics around you and play mind games with you. But all they have is their very limited philosophy and their own thoughts. You have something much stronger than that. You've got the Word of God. This is much stronger than any of that. You have the truth as revealed by God, and so proclaim that to them. Be bold and direct. Use verses such as the following, John 14, 6, because the issue here is where they're heading and the only way to get there. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I don't care what else they espouse. If it's not Jesus Christ, they're not going to heaven. They're not getting to the Father. Now even stronger warning, Philippians 2, 10, and 11, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you can tell him point blank. At some point you will understand what I'm talking about and you will believe what I'm talking about and you will bow the knee. It's just a matter of now when it's going to go good for you and you get to go to heaven or later when it's too late and you're forced down. So which is it going to be? That's strong, isn't it? But we can go back to the word of God and be strong with it. Or even stronger, Revelation 20, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Where are you headed? Where are, is your destiny? What do you believe now? Be strong. It is a matter of life and death. Eternal life or eternal death. And these same verses work just as well on those who are proclaiming a false religion including the Jehovah Witnesses that keep knocking on the door. They have gotten more bold. Um, When I first moved here, one knocked on my door, and then it was uh, 19 years before anybody else knocked on it. Now I've had them three years running, knocking on my door. I'm like, you've got to be kidding. They knocked on my door last Sunday while all of you were practicing. They came in. I saw them come in, parking lot. They all looked at the church and then came in, thought they were going to talk to me. The verses worked just as well. Sir, you're proclaiming what's taking people to hell. And the one who's being trained, you're on dangerous ground if you follow this guy. Do you get the point? They're educated fools. You need to be strong with them. They think they know something they don't know really anything about. Don't be intimidated. If you have the Bible, you have the Word of God, you have the truth, you have the infinite wisdom of the Creator of the universe. 
and all they have is their finite musings and of their limited minds. Does that make sense? In addition, when you're dealing with them, silence them by your behavior. 1 Peter 2.15 tells us that such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Make sure your behavior is beyond reproach. We don't have to be obnoxious. We can be direct, we can be strong, we can be forceful without being obnoxious or disrespectful. Respect those who have a proper authority over you. So the educated fools, leaders of false religions, yeah, they're hard to deal with at times. But there's another type of fool that God hates even more, and that's the apathetic fool. The apathetic fool is best seen in Matthew 12.30 and Revelation 3.15 and 16. Matthew 12.30 says, He who is not for me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And Revelation 3.15 says, I know your deeds, you're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You see, there's no middle ground with God. You're either for Christ or you're against him. You can't straddle the fence. You either work for him or you're working against him. You're either a friend of Jesus or you're an enemy. There's no neutral position. Indifference to the claims of Christ is a choice to be his enemy. Now, how should we treat this type of fool? Well, first, explore why they're apathetic. Okay? Don't get in debate with someone or start arguing with them unless you kind of know what you're dealing with. Why are they so apathetic? You may find out they're an ignorant fool that just does not understand the serious nature of the claims of Christ. He claims to be God incarnate. He claims to have uh, procured our atonement on the cross. Our salvation is bound up in that when he died. They may be ignorant of the reality of heaven and hell. In fact, that's becoming very strong in our nation because hell is a doctrine that keeps getting attacked even in the evangelical community. Challenge the indifference, proclaim the truth of the scriptures. Now, on the other hand, they may just be a passive educated fool. They have not heard or understood the gospel, but they've chosen to ignore it because they're either uncertain or they don't believe it. In either case, push them off the fence. Get it? Okay? They think they're straddling it. Push them off. Don't leave them there. The only reason they are not currently suffering eternal damnation is because God is patient and forbearing and long-suffering. And at some point, the consequences of their sin is going to catch up to them and it will culminate in the great white throne judgment and a condemnation to eternal hell. So push them off the fence. Don't let them continue to go that direction in ignorance. It's a warning that we need to give them. That's a very sobering truth, isn't it? Well, what about a professing Christian that's passive? Well, for a true Christian, the consequences are they miss the blessings that could have been and should have been theirs. They will not enjoy the fruits of the Spirit, Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness, self-control. They won't be there. And then the work they do here is going to be wood, hay, and straw. 
not gold, silver, and precious stones, it will bring them no eternal reward, according to 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. If their passivity is leading them to sin, then Hebrews 12 gives them a warning. You are at risk of God's chastening. And of course, if that does happen, thank God that you're being chastened, because if it's not there, then you're not his son. Be very glad if God chastens you, okay? Because it demonstrates you belong to him. Just pay attention to it and get your life straightened out. If they're apathetic, Revelation 3.16 again warns about the lukewarm. Christ says, I'm spewing you out of my mouth. Jesus gives an even stronger warning in Matthew 7. It's right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the culmination of it as he wraps up the force of all of his teachings. In 7 through 29, he deals with those who profess to know him and yet will not follow him, will not obey him. Now, that would include even a lot of people who profess to know Christ and even say they're doing all sorts of things in Jesus' name. Yet at the end, Jesus says this, quote, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I think that's the most horrible thing anybody could ever hear. To go through life, thank you're saved, you're going to heaven, and then find out too late you are not saved and you're heading to hell. Could there be anything more tragic than that? Challenge them to examine themselves to see if they're in the faith. That is legitimate. Second Corinthians thirteen five. Paul did that with the Corinthians. That should never be a problem for us who are true Christians. Challenge it. Because now I know where I can go back. No, I may have things mess in my life. Help me get out of the pit I've gotten myself into. That's what we do as Christians, right? It's not a matter of one thinking they're better than the other. We as Christians help each other. We're all saved sinners. We help each other walk with Christ. So if you challenge it, all it's going to do is keep forcing me back to eventually with is, look, I'm not going to heaven because of something in me. I'm going to heaven for a very, very simple reason. I have an advocate, and he made a promise to me, and he will keep it. So it's in his hands. Isn't that what salvation is about? It's not because I've done something. It's not because I raised my hand when the evangelist said, raise your hand and close your eyes and all that kind of stuff. It's not because I walked the aisle. It's not because I prayed a prayer. Prayer can't save you. The God you prayed to saves you, right? So when it comes to my salvation, it is all bound up in Jesus Christ has done the work for me. He has made me promises and I trust him. So to be challenged to see whether I'm in the faith, it will just simply force me back there. Yes, I belong to him. Yes, I may be struggling. Yes, I need to get things cleaned up and he's working with me. You help me too. But don't be afraid to do that. Let's face it, if you challenge someone like that and they get mad at you and stomp off, what would it be like if you never did? They're just quietly going to hell? That's not good. Let's be honest with each other. Let's have compassion on each other. Let's admonish each other when we need it. You see, the ignorant fool, he needs to be taught. 
The educated fool needs a very strong dose of the truth. And the apathetic fool needs to be forced from the position of indifference. Push them off the fence. And all of them need to be silenced by doing right. Now the final type of fool is what we should be. The wise fool. Here's what we want to be. The wise fool. Now we looked at 1 Corinthians 1, 18-31 where which the wisdom of God is contrasted with the wisdom of the world. But this idea of a wise fool is very simply depicted a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians 4.10. And there Paul says, we are fools for Christ's sake. What could be better than that? The world may consider us foolish. So what? And the world will consider you to be a fool. Think about it. The world is against those who believe and follow God's word. Very much against it. In the science community, you will be shunned if you believe in biblical creation and that Noah's flood was worldwide. Expect it. If you're trying for an academic position, expect it. You probably will not get it. You will not get tenure, and you may lose the position you do have. It happens all the time. In the academic community... They will react negatively if you claim the Bible is the inerrant and fallible word of God that is written by the authors as claimed and that Jesus really did say the words that are recorded in the Gospels. What kind of fool are you to believe something like that? It will go negative for you. How about more personal, your acquaintances? How do they react when you tell them that you believe that Jesus Christ is God himself in human flesh and that he lived a sinless life, that he voluntarily died for our sins and rose from the dead on the third day, and based on that, he offers salvation as a gift from God, his grace, to all who believe. How do they react when you tell them that? Well, most of you have done that at some point, and you know the reactions sometimes are like, what kind of nut are you? What planet did you come from? Right? The mainstream media, they lose all rationality when any political figure actually will call themselves a Christian and walk that way. You see, you're fine. Society thinks you're fine. You can call yourself a Christian as long as you don't actually believe Jesus and try and follow him. The problem always comes when you actually believe him and try and follow his example. Then they come unglued. And we're all aware of that if you just read even news headlines of how they treat those who have anything to do with Christianity and trying to walk in it. What are you, an extremist? Are you some sort of radical? Are you a fanatic? Is that a bad thing? Well, I guess it depends on who you want to please, right? The purpose of your salvation, the purpose of being a Christian, is to be like Christ, isn't it? Luke 6.40, when a disciple is fully trained, he'll be like Who? His teacher, we are whose disciples? Christ's. Our goal is to try and be like him. Romans 8, 29, God is busy at work and he is conforming us to the image of his son. That's pretty good. I'm glad he's still working on it. I'm glad he's patient while he's doing that. 1 John 3, 2, here's our great hope. We don't know what we shall be, but we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. We're looking forward to that day. My goal is to be like Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me just as I am also of Christ. So 
Were the apostles fanatical? Was Paul an extremist? Is Christianity radical? Yes, it is. Praise God. Being a Christian is radical. Think about it. 2 Corinthians 5.17, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Um, That's pretty radical, isn't it? What could be more extreme than Ephesians 2.5? You were dead in your transgressions, dead, and he made you alive with him. Dead to alive. Anything more extreme than that? I don't think so. Why then should it be considered fanatical to strive to live for Christ, proclaim his message to the world? What is the very purpose of our life and our existence? Would such be the mark of every Christian that just be normal for us? Too often we seek to hide. We don't want to make waves. Go make waves. Push people off their fences. Stir things up. Should be not just the apostles, not just certain church leaders, everybody. Some of you are familiar with the story of Jim Elliott and the others who became martyrs. It's just over 56 years ago in their effort to bring the gospel to the Aka tribe in Ecuador. Jim Elliott was saved when he was fairly young. He committed himself to Bible training. While in college, he was very well liked. He was a good student. He uh, was the school champion wrestler. He was a member of the student council, and he was president of the Foreign Missions Fellowship. Jim Elliott could have fit very well into any pastor in America, but he had a different calling from God had a different burden. Even then, back in the 50s, there were those that thought Jim somewhat foolish to serve God in a radical manner, but he thought differently. Let me read you a quote from him. This comes from his diary. He, referring to God, he makes his ministers a flame of fire. comes from Hebrews. And then he goes on and asks this question, am I ignitable? God deliver me from the dread asbestos of other things. Saturate me with the oil of the spirit that I may be a flame. But a flame is transient, often short-lived. Canst thou bear this, my soul, short life? In me there dwells the spirit of the great short-lived, whose zeal for God's house consumed him. And he said this, Make me thy fuel, flame of God. Very radical for a man in his 20s. God used Jim Elliot in exactly that manner. Jim delayed marriage until after he began his work as a missionary. He did that on purpose. He did marry He had his wife Elizabeth join him in Ecuador to work among the uh, Quechua Indians. But Jim wanted to reach another tribe. These were the Akas. They were a fierce, very dangerous tribe. And he and four other men began to pray and plan and figure out some way to how do we start reaching these people we can't even find. Very reclusive. Well, they had some initial success. They found a village And they began dropping gifts to them from their plane, not just hanging it out. They actually drop it down on a a rope so they could 
to get it without hurting anybody. And they did this for quite a while, trying to bring a friendship and say that we're friendly people. There was more prayer, more planning, more gifts. Finally, they were ready to make personal contact. And a base was set up on a sandbar on a river fairly close to where their village was. A lot of more prayer, a lot more planning. And finally, two Akas, or three Akas, two women and one man, ventured to meet them. And it was a very positive meeting with them. But what about the whole village? Could they make contact with the rest of them? More prayer, more planning, more gifts. And finally, one morning, the plane had flown over the village to try and encourage them to come to camp. They were giving gifts to them. And they saw there was a group of ten men going toward the missionary camp. The pilot of the plane, Pete Fleming, raided the base station and said, Looks like they'll be here for the early afternoon service. Pray for us. This is the day. We will contact you next at 4.30. That contact never came. That Sunday afternoon, January 8th, 1956, Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Nate Saint, Roger Yordian, and Ed McCauley gave up what they could not keep to gain what they could not lose. Five days later, a rescue party found their bodies in the river with Aka Spears, lots of them. They gave their lives in the efforts to read a very ignorant people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the world's response was, what utter foolishness. God allowed five men to die. He allowed five women to be widowed. He allowed the children to be orphaned. One child born several weeks after her father's death. Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He meant it. It's a true statement. He lived by that. He had another statement. When it comes time to die, make sure all you have to do is die. The world says that's foolish. But God used the death of these men to call a horde of people into missions work all over the world. It inspired countless people to go into missions. And in less than three years, there was contact with that same tribe. In less than three years, Jim Elliott's widow, Elizabeth, along with their baby daughter, Valerie, were living in that village and were friends, friends with the men that had killed Jim. 1 Corinthians one twenty five again. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Do you get the point? It doesn't have to be our way. God does know what he's doing. I don't know that God is calling any of you to die as a missionary martyr in some foreign land. I do know, absolutely, that God is calling you to serve him where you are right now with the same kind of commitment that Jim Elliot had and the other four men. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24 through 27, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Isn't that Jim Elliot's commitment? Because that's where it came from. For whosoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? 
Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father and with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Sobering words. Again, are we willing to follow Christ in that manner? Jamelia again said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Are you afraid of being called a fool for Christ? Are you willing to become such a wise fool? You see, the reality is you're going to be some kind of fool. What kind? Ignorant? Educated? Apathetic? Are you willing to be a wise fool? A fool for Christ's sake? That's the kind of fool I want to be. I hope it's the kind of fool you want to be.